biology. 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 Hello and welcome back to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. Today on the podcast, we have quite a few dot points to go through. And the order that they come out in the syllabus is a little different to how I'm going to go through it today. Um, so the next dot point in order from what I went through last time is evaluate the change to Earth's biodiversity due to genetic techniques. But we haven't really gone through some of the alternate techniques first to really evaluate those changes and how they affect biodiversity. So what we can do is look at the next dot point, which is later on in the syllabus, evaluate the effect on biodiversity of using biotechnology in agriculture. So a lot of crossover um, content here, which is good. You can use lots of stuff across multiple dot points. And then the next one is also semi-relevant. Interpret a range of secondary sources to assess the influence of social, economic, and cultural contexts on a range of biotechnologies. And the last one here, which is evaluate the benefits of using genetic technologies in agriculture, medical, and industrial applications. Now, if you've heard my episode on biotechnology, uh, past, present, and future, I pretty much went through all of those anyway. So I'll probably be skipping that dot point because I covered the industrial applications, the agricultural and the medical applications of biotechnologies, in particular looking at things like CRISPR um, and transgenics and things like that. So what we're going to move on to today is going through the remaining pieces of technology and explaining how they function and their importance. And then we're going to be looking at the role of those technologies in either increasing or decreasing biodiversity. And we'll look at the short-term and long-term effects probably in the next episode. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and let's get stuck in. All right, so we are starting at the inquiry question, does artificial manipulation of DNA have the potential to change populations forever? So do the uh, biotechnologies that we're talking about today, are they going to have an impact on a population forever? And most people would probably say yes to that answer. So in terms of writing an extended response to this question, you'd obviously have to explain each point. And the dot point that we start at is, uh, again, another crossover one. It says, investigate the uses and advantages of current genetic technologies that induce genetic change. So really, we have to look at a few different pieces of genetic technologies that induce genetic change and then talk about their uses and advantages. So again, I, I feel like the ordering of this, um, this content is a bit convoluted. So we're going to start at the first reproductive technologies that are listed, which is artificial insemination and artificial pollination. The dot point, the next dot point is compare the processes and outcomes of reproductive technologies, including but not limited to artificial insemination and artificial pollination. So let's look at that now and we'll go through it. So artificial insemination is uh, involving collecting sperm from an individual male and artificially introducing it to several selected females potentially. It's something that has been done for a long time. It's not anything particularly new. And I did mention in a previous episode about the Belgian blue cow, where they actually can individually choose the sperm that they're going to insert. So a pretty, I guess, refined process these days and something that certainly uh, does work and is effective. So what are the outcomes of this process? 
Well, we um, have the ability to move you know, sperm across multiple nations. Once it's frozen, it can be transported and, and kept for a long period of time. So you're able to really export this product that can be used worldwide, and you can get those beneficial traits in all of the offspring that uh, you potentially want to make. And obviously, if there's a particular species that you uh, like or that you, you know, want to produce or reproduce, then you obviously can choose those different variations. So it gives you options, especially as farmers, in terms of cows to pick many, many different breeds in order to produce the kind of cow that you would like to raise. And the example, as I said before, that I've spoken about is the Belgian blue cow, where you know they, they individually select the sperm that's going to be inserted into the female. And that Belgian blue cow has that double muscle gene, um, which is really just a, a modified gene that causes the muscles to uh, not stop growing, to continue growing, so it gets very large. And the idea is you produce more meat at a, at a, at a lower cost. Another good example you can use is the uh, American bull Toy Story, which uh, who fathered around you know 500,000 daughters worldwide, so obviously had a trait that was beneficial, and that was then able to be you know produced in a large quantity, and then uh, spread potentially globally in order to make the offspring that they desired. Some other outcomes of artificial insemination include uh, increasing biodiversity and conservation. Um, so we're going to talk about how it affects biodiversity sort of at the end um, and maybe in the next episode. Uh, but the idea is that you can potentially uh, save a species by using artificial insemination and uh, using those techniques we just spoke about in order to reproduce, you know, traits that are favorable that will allow the organisms to survive. But there is, you know, questionable methods being used here when you talk about giving them variation. So again, we will talk about that at the end or next episode. The second one is artificial pollination, and this one we've spoken about before as well. And the process is pretty much where the pollen is removed from the uh, stamen of one plant, uh, from the anther, and then it's placed on the stigma of, of potentially another flower on another plant of the same species in order to grow the necessary, you know, whatever it is that you want, a fruit, a leaf color, a flower color, a height, any trait that you can think of. Plants are a lot uh, more easily manipulated. Another benefit of the process includes, apart from using favorable traits, is that you can make hybrid varieties of things. So you can kind of mix and match genes in order to produce potentially new beneficial traits. And then they can carry plants that have multiple beneficial traits, not just one or the other. It doesn't just grow tall, it grows tall and large fruits. And therefore, you've got more fruit on a larger tree. So you get you know, a higher yield. And one more benefit is that by using this process, you can actually increase variability. So you're mixing and matching um, pollen from one species, obviously, to the next. And potentially, you could, you could do some crossbreeding in order to produce new and favorable traits in, in uh, plants. So uh, we will talk about that variability later, as I said. So we're going to move on now and talk about the next stop point, which is investigate and assess the effectiveness of cloning, including but not limited to whole organism cloning and gene cloning. So I'm actually going to go through gene cloning first. And gene cloning is a much more effective method that is something we have used for a while. And it's something that I've already spoken about. And this links in very well with the next stop point. Like I said, lots of linking here which is the development of transgenic organisms in agriculture and medical applications and the use of recombinant DNA technology. So gene cloning is simple. It's where you take a segment of gene that you want 
and you replicate it. And there's two main methods in order to replicate it. There's the use of bacterial plasmids, which is exactly what recombinant DNA technology uses as well, where you take the gene that is uh, of interest and it gets inserted into a plasmid. And I've spoken about this many times. Insulin production is used with this method. The gene of interest produces insulin, for example, and it's inserted into the bacterial plasmid. They're little rings of DNA that exist outside the the main DNA in bacteria, but they uh, code for proteins. And so the production of insulin can be managed in bacteria rather than extracted from the organs of dead animals, which is how they used to get it. The process involves, as I said, cutting a gene, gene region, and inserting it. Now, the um, cutting process and the reconnecting process is really enhanced through the use of things called sticky ends. And you can think about a sticky end is just a set of two A's and two T's that are kind of like a, a puzzle piece or a connector piece where they know that uh, scientists know that they're going to stick together at those ends, those two A's and T's. And those sticky ends allow the gene of interest to be stuck into the right place in order for it to be copied. The other example to talk about is the use of PCR. And we've talked about this once before when I mentioned uh, DNA analysis. So sequencing process, use PCR as well. And PCR is where you're artificially copying that gene region. So the gene is once again of interest, is in this case, is placed into a, a bath of a few different materials. But instead of just being the gene, the, the entire piece of DNA is put in because the idea is we have to separate it and, and make more of it. So the DNA goes into a mixture of nucleotides and polymerases. It's then heated up and the DNA is separated. The weak hydrogen bonds separate and this causes the split of that DNA molecule. DNA polymerase will attach to the strand and new nucleotides will be added just as it is in your DNA replication processes in your cells. So as the polymerase adds new bases and gets to the end of the gene region, the process is repeated. It's uh, heated up. Separated, polymerase attaches, and it goes on and on and on until you have the thousands of genes that you need. And having lots and lots of copies is useful for scientists because when they're doing experiments and things like that, they might need to insert lots of copies in order to potentially get the outcome that they want. So in terms of limitations of the process, uh, extraction of the gene regions, that can be tricky at times. But overall, it's actually a relatively cheap process and pretty effective. There's uh, not much evidence to suggest that anything significant goes wrong um, these days anyway. And you can get you know, a gene uh, region copied for around between 5 to $50 from my last look. So for those scientists using gene regions, if they want copies of it, they can easily buy it from a few different places. And as I said, insulin is a great example here of gene cloning and recombinant DNA technology, which we'll go through in a minute. Now, whole organism cloning is a little more controversial, and the process is sometimes called SCNT, or somatic cell nuclear transfer. And that's a good name, and I like to teach it in detail to the students, because somatic cell is a body cell which contains a nucleus with all of the chromosomes you need nuclear to do with the nucleus and transfer so the idea is you're taking that somatic cell and you're copying it completely you're making a new version of the animal using that somatic cell that's very important because that full complement of dna is what you're going to need in order to make a new organism now the process itself is relatively simple to understand there is a, well, I'll use sheep as an example because that's the easiest one that I usually teach and Dolly is a great example for a cloned uh, whole organism. So one organism donates a uh, somatic cell. Now it can be a male or a female, it doesn't really matter, it just depends on what you want. 
Now remember that that somatic cell will contain all of the chromosomes needed to make the new clone. So if they're a male, they're going to have that XY chromosome. If they're a female, they're going to have an XX chromosome. So that nucleus is extracted and it's going to be inserted into an empty egg, which is taken from a female. Now this has to be a female here. So uh, in the case of Dolly the sheep, there was a, a female a surrogate that donated the egg and the egg has been enucleated. So the nucleus has been taken out of the egg and now you have an empty, you know, a shell basically. So the nucleus is placed within the egg shell and then an electric shock is um, produced, which causes the cell to start dividing, which is a really amazing process that they figured this out. Uh, once you, you know, give it a little electric shock, the spark of life occurs. You get that division happening. And you can do a few things at this point after division has started. They can separate the individual cells at this point into smaller clumps, and they can do something called twinning, um, which is where you get lots of different copies of those early embryos and you insert them into lots of different cows. And then you're going to get a copy of that exact combination of cells in each individual embryo. Uh, but we're going to go through the process of just making one clone. So after the electric shock happens and we get that ball of cells start forming. So once those cells have started forming, they then get reinserted back into a different surrogate. So this is where a female sheep, it has to be a female sheep in this case as well, is receiving that early embryo at this stage and what it's going to do is it's going to just grow it as it normally would and so the organism will uh, potentially grow as it normally would and it will come out as an identical clone. Now keep in mind a clone won't necessarily look exactly like the original because a clone although having the same DNA has experienced different environmental conditions. Now this relates very well to the idea of non-coding DNA <coughs> and the function that it has uh, in creating phenotypic features. So a clone won't always look like their parent However, they will have identical DNA, which is a bit of a tricky one for students to understand sometimes. So when the clone comes out, uh, it should have a, uh, an identical copy of the DNA. Obviously, there might be some uh, mutations along the way causing it to change and not be, you know, 100%, but it will more or less be identical um, from the original. With Dolly the sheep, it is something that was relatively difficult in the beginning. They had about, I think, 276 attempts um, and it was fairly costly. Now, it's actually still pretty significant in terms of its cost, and there's a pretty low success rate. So it's not necessarily beneficial at this point to use cloning, and that's really what the dot point is about. It says investigate and assess the effectiveness of cloning, and then goes through each of the two. So with whole organism cloning, there are a range of issues here you can talk about. The low success rate, the high um, cost, the concerns for animal welfare. So the 276 previous attempts, how far did they get along? When did the, um, when did the sheep you know, make it or not make it? What about using this to potentially clone humans? And what if you know, an individual cell is taken from someone and can be used? We have the unforeseen risks like mutation and there's obviously the ideas of decreased genetic diversity which again we'll go through that a bit later. So lots to unpack there and a really good um, extended response question you can ask because it's an assess which is a high level verb. Assess the effectiveness of cloning. So I always go through this with my students and I tell them to break down each point and then make an assessment, an overall assessment. So. Gene cloning is effective, it is cheap, it's relatively successful and we can make things like insulin. Then you go through the example of insulin, how it works, how it's made. 
Um, however, and then you you know you go through the idea of whole organism cloning, and you and you explain the process of SCNT. You explain an example like Dolly the sheep. You talk about how much it costs, the low success rate, concerns for animal welfare, unforeseen risks, and things like that. And then you give you know the judgment call. So what's the assessment? Is it is it effective or not? And the the answer is ambiguous because gene cloning is effective, whereas cloning of uh, of organisms is still probably not effective. But this is going to be depending on what research they use and, and what information they provide in their answer. So just be aware of that. It's a it's a good extended response question to practice. Now, the next one relates very closely is describe techniques and application used in recombinant DNA technology. For example, the development of transgenic organisms in agriculture, uh, agricultural and medical applications. So the agricultural examples we've talked about previously, the process of making golden rice, and golden rice has the genes now, golden rice 2, from two individual species, separate species. I think it was a daffodil and a bacteria. And that gives it the increased amount of vitamin A, which is beneficial for people that suffer vitamin A deficiency in uh, lots of places around the country due to the rice that doesn't contain the beta carotene. In terms of a medical example, so the dot point says the use of transgenic organisms in agriculture and medicine, we once again come to insulin, a great example that crosses so many dot points. Uh, so the use of transgenics in order to produce insulin, a medical you know, chemical that is uh, in, in very high demand. So very quickly, the dot point says techniques and applications used in recombinant DNA technology. And the techniques used are those that we just spoke about before. So recombinant DNA technology involves isolating a particular gene, inserting it into a plasmid that has sticky ends. And this can be done through things called restriction enzymes that do the cutting for us. So we insert them, they know they're not pre-programmed, but they cut at particular regions, and we know what those regions are. Those restriction enzymes cut the gene regions and the plasmids. The fragments produced have the matching sticky ends we spoke about before. They then recombine uh, those sticky ends, then, you know, uh, ligased over by DNA ligase, which kind of makes it a nice smooth DNA strand. And then the gene or the plasmids are reinserted back into the bacteria in order to produce the you know, whatever it is that we need. So insulin, for example. Now, a couple of ways it can get inserted into the cells, and there are some really cool ways that I really like talking about. The first one, simple microinjection, where they inject, you know, a, a piece of the DNA directly into the nucleus. So if there's a gene that we want um, potentially to be expressed in an individual, maybe they don't carry the gene or they have certain issues, they can just insert many copies of it. So this is going into gene therapy, which we'll talk about sort of later in the syllabus. But it is a form of biotechnology gene therapy, the idea that we are, you know, artificially giving them the genes they need to make the proteins. The second one, which is super cool, is ballistics, which is where the gene region is potentially wrapped up in gold particles and fired directly into the cells under high pressure. Another interesting way to introduce the DNA is one I've spoken about previously, which is using a vector, so transduction uh, in viruses. This is where a virus will be programmed to get into your nucleus and deliver the gene directly to the DNA. Now that's going to be useful because the virus has everything it needs to get in, get past your immune system and really deliver that DNA to where it's needed um, in order to potentially make the gene. So those vectors are super useful throughout science and I think they're going to be very useful in the future when we talk about phage therapy and things like that. 
We'll go through just two more examples of an industrial or agricultural and medical application. The first one is transgenic BT cotton. Again, we've spoken about this, but BT cotton is produced using the BT gene. That's the Bacillus thuringiensis. Uh, bacterial gene that produces a toxin that is deadly to the bollworm or moth and that is inserted directly into the plants in an early embryo stage or where they've got a, a small callus or the very you know a very few cells so that every cell will potentially contain the gene and it gets infected and then grows into the new plant and hopefully it's in every single cell. The BT gene is very common to find in lots of plants and it gets more I guess controversial when we talk about BT corn and products where consumers are actually eating the products. Another medical use of transgenics are knockout mice and knockout mice are useful for testing. The idea is that genes can be knocked out and replaced by other ones to see what happens and um, they're really useful in studying things like stem cell research and heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. They're really a useful model because their DNA is so close to ours. I think it's something like 90% similar. Uh, therefore, we, we see a lot of similarities between them and us. They really are the heroes of modern medicine, probably underappreciated in terms of their significance in, in everything that they do. So knockout mice is another really good example you can check out. All right, I think we will wrap it up there. And next week on the podcast, I'll go through the impact of all of these technologies have on biodiversity, particularly looking at short and long-term effects. We're going to also look at the impact on agriculture and the ideas that it's impacting our social, economic, and cultural contexts. And so that will all be on next week's episode. Apart from that, guys, uh, make sure you do check out STEM Reactor at stemreactor.com.au. They're really useful for you know depth studies and particularly if you do uh, extension science, there's a lot of excellent resources there. So make sure you check out stemreactor.com.au. See you next time.